Hey guys, I'm back. Thanks for being patient with me. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. I apologize that we traveled out of town to Colorado at the beginning of December. We were there visiting family and when we got back home, the Rona got me. And uh, yeah, it messed me up. It took me out of commission for weeks. It sucked. But I am finally feeling better. My voice is back to normal. I'm no longer coughing up a lung. So I am back. And I figured for my return episode, it better be a good one. So this episode is one that I have really been looking forward to doing. Today, we are talking about Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Let's ring in the new year by talking about this sack of monkey shit. Let's start it off being thankful we never came in contact with this guy. So let's talk about him. This guy. Holy shit. He seriously huge piece of shit. If you didn't already know this guy, in my opinion, is one of the worst. He is such a sick fuck. He is top of the list. You know why this guy is so fucking scary? Because he had no clear pattern. Like no obvious motives. No type. He didn't have a style in which he killed that could be seen as a pattern. He was totally random. So absolutely random. He killed a wide range of types of people. Um young, old, and everything in between. He had um, a style of different weapons, or actually not a style. It just would be a random weapon. Um, He raped, he killed, he kept some people alive. Um, Just twisted. So messed up in the head, this guy. He wasn't one of these serial killers that got all butthurt over some ex-girlfriend, so went out after all the women that reminded him of her. Uh, He didn't have something against a certain group of people, so he only killed that type of people. He was no ordinary serial killer. He chose people and places randomly. And that, my friends, is why he is so terrifying. This guy is the reason I triple check my doors at night. So let's talk about him. Let's start by going back to the beginning. Dive into what made Richard Ramirez the sick fucker that he was. It all started on February 29th, 1960. Richard Leva Munoz Ramirez was unfortunately brought into this world. Ramirez grew up in El Paso, Texas. He was the youngest of five children, born to Mercedes and Julian Ramirez, who were Mexican immigrants. His father was actually a policeman in Juarez and later um, coming to America, he worked for the Santa Fe Railroad. So while his mother was pregnant with Richard, she was actually exposed to harmful fumes while working in a boot factory. Interesting enough, his siblings all had some kind of birth defect ranging from respiratory issues to bone deformities. Richard also had two instances of head trauma. Once when he was only two years old, 
and he was trying to climb up a dresser to get to a radio apparently and the dresser fell over on him and it required 30 stitches in his head again when he was five he was knocked out from a swing the his sister was on a swing he got knocked out now after that happened he started having seizures now he eventually outgrew those seizures in his teen years Ramirez in later interviews claims that his father was physically abusive to everyone in the family Ramirez would escape his father's temper by running off to a local cemetery at night to sleep at age 12 Richard was shown graphic pictures by his older cousin Miguel also called Mike Ramirez he was a Vietnam vet and these Polaroids were of Vietnamese women that he tortured dismembered raped and killed pictures showing Mike holding severed heads Mike had a high kill count as a soldier but his total number of kills was much higher he would capture Vietnamese women tie them up torture and rape them before cutting their heads off he even kept several heads shrunk them and used them to sleep on like pillows it was no secret what he was doing but it was kind of overlooked and seen just as his way of dealing with things dealing with being a part of this Vietnam War the horrors that come with you know, this horrific war that was going on so back home he struggled getting a job he even kept mementos from the war including those graphic pictures and some severed heads now during an argument one day Miguel shot his wife Jesse in the face and killed her and he did this right in front of Richard Ramirez this has all happened before Richard is even 13. Richard also starts smoking weed with his uncle a few months after witnessing his cousin brutally kill his wife Richard moves in with his sister Ruth and her husband Roberto now Roberto is what we call a peeping Tom and when he would venture out after dark he would take Richard with him in 1977 Richard's cousin Miguel or Mike he got released from Texas State Mental Hospital after being found not guilty by reason of insanity for murdering his wife so at this time Richard gets a job at the Holiday Inn and here he breaks into hotel rooms and starts stealing from guests he then decides to take it a step further he would hide in female guests rooms watch them and just fantasize and think about what he could do to them and with them then one day he acted on one of those desires after watching a woman get undressed and shower he attacked her the woman's husband who had been gone parking the car walked in and caught Ramirez raping his wife he beat the shit out of Ramirez now the couple because they didn't want to return to El Paso they dropped the charges and they just wanted to put it behind them and move on think about this childhood for a minute we always look at serial killers upbringing and their past to see if there was key times of mental or physical trauma or medical issues that they were born with 
Was it nature or was it nurture? Were they born a killer or were they made a killer? This guy sure had the odds stacked against him from the womb. But what would we call him? Is he a psychopath? We throw that word out there a lot when we are talking about someone that acts out of the normal. But is that the proper label for him? Actually, it is not. Richard Ramirez was actually considered a sociopath as opposed to a psychopath. Now, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, they were psychopaths. Why? Because a psychopath is incapable of feeling any normal range of emotion. Now you ask, why isn't Ramirez a psychopath? He doesn't seem to have a normal range of emotion. Here's the thing. A sociopath is made through life experiences. A sociopath is made by society, by childhood events, and so on. Like I said, a psychopath is incapable of a normal range of emotion, of feeling that spectrum of emotion. But Ramirez had emotional outbursts. Ramirez was spontaneous. A psychopath is the type that plans out their murders, like Bundy or Gacy, Ramirez was random, and that's not what a psychopath would do. A psychopath needs control. Ramirez was random in his acts. His victims were elderly women, children, every age in between. He would break into someone's house. He had no real plan. He kind of would just wing it, so to speak, make up his mind as he went along. He had no plan of who he was going to kill, what he would use to kill them, or if he would leave someone alive, or rape and kill them, rape and let them go. Another trait of a sociopath is a disorganized crime. Another fact about a sociopath, that according to the American Medical Association, a sociopath is not medically ill. Ramirez was not considered insane, clinically or legally, which means they're saying he knew it was wrong. Everything he was doing was wrong. He just didn't care. He had the urge to kill, and so he did. Also, what we see in some serial killers like Bundy, Dahmer, BTK, is the timing of puberty and the introduction of violence being put in their head the connection of arousal and violence. Ramirez got aroused when seeing the graphic pictures his cousin showed him. So Ramirez had a lot of factors in his childhood that we could look at and say, um, yeah, fuck, how could this kid have any kind of chance to grow up normal? When you look at the childhoods of serial killers, I'd say he had the worst textbook shitty childhood in every sense exposed to fumes in the womb head trauma not once but twice abusive father exposure to violence accompanied by arousal upon exposure to these gruesome and violent images he witnesses a murder all of this before he is 13. yeah that's a lot of odds stacked against him did he even have a chance to be normal? Not that I'm excusing any of his actions. Okay, moving on. So he drops out of high school. 
he starts experimenting with LSD. And he starts, at this time, his interest in Satanism. Now at age 22, he is now living in LA. Here, he's able to emerge himself in the sick urges that he has for sex, violence, drugs. He now begins shooting up cocaine. He is now breaking into homes, stealing to feed his own out-of-control drug habit. He is very far from the Catholic upbringing that um, he was exposed to as a child, and he is a follower of Satan. He once went to meet a coven of devil worshippers, but decided not to join the group because he thought himself to be superior to the satanic cult. By this time, he is a complete mess. Emerged in porn, drugs, crime, prostitutes, you name it. His sister Ruth comes out to LA to see if she can get him to return to home. Get him back to his Catholic roots. But he tells her he is under the protection of Lucifer. Five months later, he is arrested for car theft. He is at this time photographed and fingerprinted and was in jail for six months. Now, his first murder victim wasn't known to be his victim until 2009. On April 10th, 1984, nine-year-old Chinese-American Mei Ling had unfortunately lived close enough to where Ramirez was at the time and had an unfortunate meeting with him. Her body was found in the basement of a San Francisco hotel where Ramirez happened to be living at the time. She was raped, stabbed to death, and hung from a pipe. Like I had said, originally this murder was not identified as one of Ramirez's murders, but in 2009 there was a DNA match from a sample taken at a crime scene to Ramirez. There was also other DNA found at the scene but has never been disclosed who that second suspect may be, just that there was likely a second suspect. And that was talked about back in 2016. Moving on to June 28th, 1984. This is the first murder that happened in LA. Jenny Vincow, 79 years old, was found murdered in her LA apartment. This was an extremely brutal and shocking murder. She was nearly decapitated. A fingerprint of Ramirez was found on the screen he took off to gain access to her apartment. The thing is, this was little help at the time. Not much you can do with a fingerprint back then. This could only help link a suspect to a crime after a suspect is already identified, basically. Um, now, the Department of Justice only had hard copies of fingerprints on file, and they had about 16 million, and the computerized system for fingerprints was in the works at the time, but it wasn't available yet. Moving on to March 17th, 1985, Ramirez follows Maria Hernandez home and sneaks into her garage as she is pulling into her garage. This right here, people, is the reason I keep my eyes on my mirrors and surroundings when I'm pulling into my garage every day. This guy just scares me. Things like this are why he scares me more 
than most serial killers. He's not the guy who's like picking you up at the bar or bumping into you on the street and striking up a conversation or out in public, like pretending to need help. No, this guy gets into your home, your sanctuary, your safe place. Like you're supposed to be safe in your home. And that is why it's scary. Anyway, he's dressed all in black and he points the gun at her face. She of course is begging for her life but he shoots her. Now, she brings her hands up in a defensive move to protect herself, and this actually works. The bullet ricochets off the keys that she's holding in her hands. So she lays there and she kind of plays dead. He proceeds to enter the house where he finds her roommate, Dale Yoshi Okazaki. She heard the gunshot and crouched down behind the counter in the kitchen. Waiting there, she becomes curious and eventually pops her head up from the counter. Ramirez was waiting there for her patiently, and he shot her in the head, killing her instantly. Now, Ramirez's lust for killing was not satisfied yet that night. An hour later, he's driving around and he sees 30-year-old Sai Lianhe. He follows her off the freeway in Monterey Park. Now, she actually pulls over and she asks him why he's following her. And she says she's going to call the police. It's pretty gutsy. You're a female by yourself. Some guy's following you. So you pull over and like confront him, especially in a time before cell phones. So he shot her twice and he left her there. Um, she was still breathing when a policeman found her, but she did die shortly afterwards. Um, they did collect evidence there, including bullet casings, um, which was able to be linked to the previous murder. So having two attacks in the same day got the attention of the media and of course started to strike fear in the public. This is when the media started calling him, they came up with some names for him, and they were originally calling him the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. He was described as having long curly hair, bulging eyes, and wide spaced rotting teeth. So March 28, 1985, Ramirez goes back to a house that he had previously robbed in California. He shoots Vincent Charles Zazara, 64, in the head while he's sleeping. This wakes up his wife, Maxine Zazara, 44. Ramirez proceeds to beat her. He tears through the room looking for anything of value. Maxine is bound, but she manages to break free and grabs a gun, but the gun's not loaded. Ramirez shoots her three times, then stabs her, then gouges her eyes out. The autopsy showed that the mutilations were post-mortem. Before leaving, he put her eyes in the jewelry box. Sadly enough, Vincent and Maxine's bodies were found by their son, Peter. Again, bullets matched those at previous scenes. May 14th of 1985, Monterey Park, California, Ramirez breaks into the home of Bill Doy, 66, and his wife Lillian, 55. He shoots Bill in the face, 
beats him unconscious, and then he ties up Lillian. He actually used thumb cuffs to restrain her. He starts searching the house for valuables. He then returns to Lillian, rapes her. Bill later dies at the hospital. His footprints were found in the flower beds, which were photographed and cast, and the bullets found at the scene match those of previous crime scenes, leading authorities now to realize that they were dealing with a serial killer. Now, let's talk about those footprints for a second, because this turns out to be pretty significant. The footprints were that of an Avia sneaker. Avia, Avia, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I, I, I've heard it both ways. Anyways, Avia. We'll say Avia. It was a new shoe with a sole that had only been in America since earlier that year. A detective on the case, Detective Salerno, ran a check and found that only one pair of shoes with that brand and that size had been sold in the LA area. Now, the person at the store who sold the shoes to Ramirez didn't recall anything about the person who purchased them. And of course, they were purchased with cash. Duh. Uh, very doubtful that the Night Stalker had a bank account or a credit card. Um, so the sheriff's office decided to distribute pictures of the shoe with a composite sketch of the suspect. Um, FYI, no wonder nothing came of that composite sketch. I will post it on my Instagram and Facebook page for you guys to look at. But if you've seen this drawing, if you know what I'm talking about, it's silly. It's ridiculous. It looks nothing like him at all. So um, check it out for yourself. It's pretty, pretty ridiculous. Now it's May 29th, 1985. Ramirez steals a car and drives it to Monrovia, California, where he breaks into the home of Mabel, or Ma Bell is what everyone called her. And she's 84 years old. And she has an 81-year-old sister, Florence, or Nettie, Lang. He finds a hammer in their kitchen that he uses to brutally beat these women. After leaving Ma Bell unconscious, he then shocks her with an electrical cord. He rapes Lang at this point. He then draws a pentagram in Belle's lipstick on her thigh and on the walls in both of their bedrooms. It was two days before the women were discovered, still clinging to life. Ma Bell later died. Now leaving these pentagrams now gave everyone an idea of the type of person that they were dealing with. Later, the police said that Ramirez believed he was Satan's chosen one, sent out to do evil in the name of his dark master. Ramirez believed that Satan protected him and thought that when he died, he was going to take his rightful place at Satan's side in hell as his right-hand man. Next day, Ramirez now drives his stolen car to Burbank. He breaks into the home of Ruth Wilson, 41, by reaching up through the dog door and letting himself in. She woke up to a bright light of a flashlight in her face. He dragged her to her 12-year-old son's room and handcuffed them. 
He rifled through the house for valuables. He then sodomized Ruth multiple times, telling her not to look at him. And if she did, he told her he would cut her eyes out. During this, the son was put in a closet. So when he was done with Ruth, he got her son from the closet and handcuffed them together again and left. On the 27th of June, a 27-year-old teacher um, was found dead and she had been sodomized and her throat had been slit. On July 2nd, Ramirez, still driving that stolen car, goes to Arcadia, California, to the home of Mary Louise Cannon, who is 75 years old. He knocks her out with a lamp and stabs her with a knife from her own kitchen, leaving her dead. July 5th of 1985, a 16-year-old Whitney Bennett is asleep in her Sierra Madre home. Ramirez attacks her with a tire iron. Now get this, he takes a telephone cord and he attempts to strangle her. And as he's doing so, the cord sparks. Whitney starts to breathe and Ramirez thinks that this is a sign from Jesus. He believes that Jesus intervened and saved her. So he took off. So Whitney survived that attack, but she did need 478 stitches from the lacerations that he left. July 7th, two different attacks this night. First, he breaks into the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson in Monterey Park. He robs her, beats her to death, and while doing so, he leaves a shoe print on her face. He then goes to Sophie Dickman's home, handcuffs her at gunpoint, tries to rape her, steals her jewelry, and then he commands her to swear to Satan that she has given him everything of value. July 20th, he steals a different vehicle now, and after buying a machete, he drives to Glendale, California. He breaks into Leela and Maxon Needing's home as they sleep. He uses the machete and a gun, both, to kill them. He, and then he robs them before he leaves. So apparently, he became impatient with how long it was taking to kill them with the machete, so he switched to the gun. So he took everything of value and he walked out the front door. But he's not done. He drives straight to Sun Valley, breaks into the home of Changrong and Somkid Kovanath. He rapes and beats Somkid, shoots and kills Changrong, then ties up their eight-year-old son. He forces Somkid to point out all, value, all valuables and again, he forces her to swear to Satan that she isn't hiding any money. He then rapes the eight-year-old boy before he leaves. He left another shoe print. So you think he's taunting the police by leaving these shoe prints? I don't know. I think he's probably just really stupid. At this point, this is when he is now starting to be called the Night Stalker. August 6th of 1985, Chris and Virginia Peterson are lucky enough to survive the attack after Ramirez breaks into their home. Ramirez shot Virginia in the face and he shoots Chris in the neck. After he tried to flee, 
Chris fought back, but Ramirez managed to escape anyway. On August 8, 1985, Ramirez drives his stolen car to Diamond Bar and randomly chooses a house. He breaks into the home of Sakina and Elias Abawath. He shoots Elias while sleeping. He proceeds to handcuff, beat, sodomize, and rape Sakina. He again makes her swear to Satan that she wouldn't scream. And this time, their three-year-old walks into the bedroom. So Ramirez ties him up and just keeps raping his mother. Ramirez then goes to the kitchen, gets himself a snack, eats uh, some melon from their refrigerator before he leaves. Ramirez was actually known for this, for getting himself a snack in the home of his victims before he left. So then um, the mother was able to untie her son and send him over to the neighbors to get help. Authorities had made little to no progress at this time. This was partly due to the lack of communication among the LAPD and the Sheriff's Department, the police at Glendale and Monterey Park. The LAPD didn't share with the Sheriff's Department what they knew. Uh, the Glendale Police and the Monterey Park Police, who um, had the footprint found at their crime scene, they weren't sharing that information with the detectives that were working the case. August 28th. 1985. At this point, Ramirez has moved on from LA to San Francisco, um, maybe because he realized that they were working hard on finding him and maybe decided to switch it up and move locations and throw him off. Um, but here he breaks into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan, where he shoots Peter in the head and then beats, rapes, and shoots Barbara. Before leaving, he writes Jack the Knife in lipstick on a bedroom wall. Now, the mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, she does something that really pisses off the detectives working the case. When it was found that the ballistic and the shoe prints from the Night Stalker crime scenes matched the pan scene, she let all of this information out in a press conference. The detectives were sure that the Night Stalker was following the media and would see what they know now. And now he has a chance to just go destroy all of his evidence. And you know what? They were right. Um, Ramirez went to the Golden Gate Bridge that night and dumped his gun and his size 11 and a half via tennis shoe over the side. August 25th, 1985. Later, he breaks into Bill Karn and Inez Erickson's home. He shoots Karn three times in the head. He makes Inez swear to love Satan. He gathers some neckties from the closet and ties her up. He rapes her. And before leaving, he tells her to tell them the Night Stalker was here. So obviously he was watching the media because now he knows that he's being called the Night Stalker. She was able to give a description of Ramirez and she got a glimpse of the car that he was in as well. She untied herself and went to a neighbor's house for help. Bill had two bullets removed from his head and he actually survived. Now, someone else was able to get a glimpse of him that night as well. 
It was a 13-year-old neighbor, James Romero, and he had spotted him earlier that night and again when he was leaving, and he thought it was suspicious, and he wrote down as much as he could of the license plate number. When news of the attack got out, the boy told his parents. They contacted the police, and they were able to provide a description of Romero's as well as partial license plate. At this time, Ramirez ditches the stolen car. He jumps on a Greyhound bus and goes to Arizona. On August 28th, they find the stolen car in LA. The fingerprint they find on the mirror was a match to a Richard Ramirez, a 25-year-old from Texas with a record. So police release the mugshot that they had from his December of 1984 arrest when he... Um, went to jail for car theft and they release a statement that says we know who you are now and soon everyone else will there will be no place you can hide so it's on they now know who they are looking for who they're after it's just a matter of getting him right like i said ramirez had hopped on a bus to tucson arizona to go visit his brother he actually had no clue what was going on back in LA. He was just going to Arizona to go visit his brother. He wasn't running away. So he was clueless. So on August 31st, he returns back home to LA. Officers that were staking out the bus terminal, he walked right past them. They were looking for him to be getting on a bus to leave. They weren't really looking for him to be getting off of a bus. So he walks a few blocks down the street. He goes into a convenience store to buy some candy. That's when a group of elderly Mexican women start calling him El Matador, Spanish for the killer. And, you know, he's thinking, what the fuck? And that's when he looks and sees the cover of every newspaper on the rack in front of him has his face on it. And this, my friends, is the absolute best story of a killer being caught ever. Let me tell you how this goes down. So this fucker decides to get on a bus. But the people on the bus recognize him and start yelling and pointing. So Ramirez takes off on foot. He's running through people's yards, jumping fences. He runs across the Santa Ana freeway and tries to hijack a woman's car. Now, these people that were all around in the area, they were not having this. They start running after him. So they're pursuing him. He's running through yards. Now police are in on it too with their cars and helicopters. He tries two more times to steal a car. Then some guy chases after him with a metal bar and starts beating him with it. Ramirez starts running up the streets, but there's like hundreds of people after him now. Residents are coming out of their homes yelling, the killer! They are all out for blood. They get him. They're stomping on him, beating the shit out of him. Someone yelled, go get my gun. The police get there in time before the angry mob kills his ass. That was the best takedown ever. A bunch of pissed off members of the community, the city that he had been terrorizing and tormenting for months, they take his ass down and it is sweet. 
Now, Ramirez was charged with 13 murders, along with 30 other charges of um, his combined other crimes. Now, if you watch that Netflix show that came out um, sometime over this last year, which, by the way, I thought it was done very well, as far as not really giving all the attention to Ramirez as a person, not really glorifying him, not highlighting him, but more so about catching him, the respect of giving the victims a voice and recognition and hearing the side of the detectives and what they went through. I think it was nicely done. But um, there was this lady on there, Anastasia, that recounts her experience with Ramirez. And it's just heartbreaking. Um, he kidnapped her when she was six. And he like put her in a duffel bag. He brings her to this filthy, dark house and he sexually assaulted her for hours. She describes the experience, the pain, the feelings, and it's just horrifying. Now he does let her go. He drove her to a gas station and let her out, told her to go have someone call 911 and have her parents come get her. Um, she actually helped the police by identifying him in a lineup. She was too young to testify in court, though. She was willing to, saying if it means keeping him locked up so he doesn't hurt any more little girls. What is amazing, though, is that she didn't let this experience, this trauma, define her or destroy her. She grew up, she went to school, she got married. It's just really strong and it's heartbreaking. Um, but wow, what a strong woman. Um, that's a hard story to listen to. Um, something else that's interesting. Um, during the end of his crime spree, he was staying at the Cecil Hotel for a while. Now, he didn't commit any of his crimes there. He was just staying there because he could kind of blend in, honestly. Um, if you aren't familiar with the Cecil, it was kind of uh, in a bad area of town, Skid Row area, very rundown part of town uh, where the homeless population was very heavy. And at the Cecil, Ramirez could blend right in with the criminals and the drug dealers and the prostitutes. And it was the type of place that a character like Ramirez would just go unnoticed. He was even known to strip out of his bloody clothes after his attacks and dispose of them in the dumpster outside the Cecil and walk through the hotel in his underwear to his room like it was no biggie. That's the kind of hotel this was. Um, the kind where a man could just walk around in his tidy whities and no one bats an eye. Just anyway, so that he was staying there for a little while. Uh, just FYI, the Cecil. It's actually a very interesting place uh, with a lot of stories. Uh, you can go back. I actually did a whole episode on the Cecil. So if you're interested, go back to that and listen to it. It's kind of a kind of a cool, um, cool building, cool place. A lot of stuff that happened there. Um, moving on to his trial. So it took a while for things to move forward. The trial kept getting pushed off for multiple reasons, uh, bickering between the attorneys and the fact that his crimes were spread out among different cities. There was jur jurisdiction issues. Um, and there was even some charges that were dropped just to expedite things. In July 
1988 is when the jury was selected. Now, the televised trial started in January of 1989. During this time, he also gained quite a following of supporters, uh, mostly just a bunch of Satan worshippers. Um, there was also a delay in the trial at one point when a juror was found murdered on August 14, 1989. Of course, the initial thought was that Ramirez had something to do with it. It was related to the trial in some way, but that was actually not the case. It was completely unrelated. She was shot by her boyfriend who committed suicide and he left a note admitting to killing her as well. The trial lasted several weeks and involved a lot of gruesome testimony, uh, as well as a lot of theatrics from Ramirez, of course. Uh, he would draw pentagrams on his hand and hold it up to the cameras and smile. After he pleaded innocent, he yells, Hail Satan, while he was being escorted out in leg chains. Uh, let's talk about the pentagram for a second. Uh, the pentagram is a symbol, it's the five-pointed star, and it actually is used in many different ways. It symbolizes different things. It's commonly perceived to be associated with Satanism and the occult. This is obviously the intent of Ramirez, the reason he is using the pentagram, uh, because he does say loud and proud that he is a Satanist. The pentagram, of course, was part of the evidence against Ramirez. And when police found a car that he was using, it actually had a pentagram on the dashboard. And when he was in jail, he drew a pentagram on the floor in his own blood. Also during the trial, his father tried to provide an alibi for two of his attacks. He told the jury that his son Richard was in Texas um, in May of 85. He stated that Richard was there for a family gathering to celebrate the first communion of the senior Ramirez's granddaughter. Richard Ramirez did not actually attend the ceremony, but Julian Ramirez said he saw his son on each of the eight or nine days that he was in El Paso. These two attacks were, uh, one of them was a single mother that Ramirez beat, raped, sodomized, and robbed. She survived and she was able to identify several pieces of jewelry that were covered, they were recovered by the police and was linked to Ramirez. And the other case was that of the elderly sisters that he beat and left to die. One of them that did die and the other one survived. On September 20th, 89, the jury returned with a unanimous guilty verdict on 43 charges. 13 counts of murder, five counts of attempted murder, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglary charges. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to death. The judge said that he showed cruelty, callousness, and viciousness beyond any human understanding. As Ramirez left the courtroom, he responded with, Hey, big deal, death always comes with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. He was sentenced to death in the gas chamber and was sent to San Quentin Prison in California to remain the rest of his days. Now, of course, there is always these fucked in the head women with low self-esteem that pine after these sickos in prison. 
I actually chatted in a little more detail about this in one of the past episodes, um, the one about Chris Watts, why women go for these men that are locked up. Uh, you know, what the hell's wrong with them? Really? What the fuck? Anyway, while old Richie was in prison, he got married. In 1996, her name was Doreen, she was 41, and she was a longtime supporter, and I guess she just couldn't resist a man, you know, who rapes old women and sodomizes children, and, you know, not to mention the beating and torturous killing, slitting someone's throat to the point of near, nearly decapitating them, gouging their eyes out, you know, it's all very sexy, right? Who wouldn't want those qualities in a husband? Now, Doreen was a freelance magazine editor, and in the late 70s and early 80s, she worked as an editor for Tiger Reed. She met several up-and-coming celebs, uh, even John Stamos, and he actually credited her with helping him become a celebrity. Stamos uh, said he remembers her um, being a very lonely woman and said... Um, to be that lonely that this is the only man on the planet that she can find, I just thought, how horrible. The man is the personification of evil, just a monster. So she starts writing him letters after she saw him on TV after his arrest. You know, she must have been drawn to those beautiful pearly whites, that beautiful smile, right? You know, those fucked up teeth. Which, by the way, um, did you notice the difference in his teeth after he was arrested? Well, that's because he got them fixed while he was in prison. Um, an old schoolmate of him said at one time that uh, he remembers Ramirez pretty much just ate junk food and never brushed his teeth. So there's that, plus all the, you know, the cocaine use that all took a, a big toll on his dental hygiene. So a dentist by the name of Alfredo Otero, and this dentist worked with the LA Sheriff's Department, and he fixed uh, Ramirez's rotting, decayed teeth. So back to Doreen. So she wrote him daily and would visit him in prison. She was at his trial. Her family disowned her. She said in an interview in 1997, quote, He's kind, he's funny, he's charming. She believed that he was innocent. Now, she wore a gold wedding ring, but Ramirez wore a platinum one because he said Satanists don't wear gold. So after almost 24 years on death row, Ramirez, he was 53 at the time, he dies before he has to meet the fate of the gas chamber. He died of complications related to B-cell lymphoma. So, why? That's the question, isn't it? What drove him? What motivated him to commit such unthinkable acts of violence? What made him a monster? He needed the stimulation, the thrill. That was his goal, I guess you could say. What he was getting out of these actions. Do you think it satisfied him? A short-term thrill, then the feeling of being empty comes back, and he's out to seek the next thrill. He robbed homes, and yeah, he needed the money, but it was also for the excitement of it. 
He stole, he raped, he savagely beat and tortured, he killed. And the mix of sex and violence was his thrill, his satisfaction. He was a horrible, sick fuck. He showed no remorse. He said he was going to be Satan's right-hand man in hell, right? Did he think he was going to be uh, partners with Satan? Help him do his dirty work? Be his little buddy or sidekick? I hope he is down there right now, getting beat with hammers, uh, strangled with cords, shot in the head, and sodomized by the biggest dick in all of hell. This guy is the sickest of sick fucks. And after hearing all of this, I hope you agree with me. Don't be a Doreen. So that is the story of the Night Stalker. Thank you for listening, my friends. This year has been a tough one for many. So here's to a better 2022. Take care of yourself. And for God's sake, lock your doors and windows. And be aware of your surroundings. Because this story is proof that there are some super twisted vile monsters out there who only want to do harm. So be smart and stay safe, please. I am out of here, guys. Have a good one. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram. The links are in the episode description. Um, I'll be posting some pictures of this sick fucker. Um, but have a happy new year. Stay safe. And as always, stay dark, my friends. Stay dark, my friends.